this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome to the award-winning Interest in Health and Safety podcast, making health and safety as important as everything else we do in business. And now your host, health and safety specialist, mentor and speaker, Colin Nottage. Hi there, it's Colin Nottage here and welcome to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast. I'm joined today by Stephen Shorrock. Stephen works for a company called Eurocontrol and and they, they basically sort of coordinate the air traffic control systems across Europe. I'm sure it's been a really interesting time with uh, with Brexit, but uh, we're not talking about that today. Because what Stephen does is he's a, a safety specialist, but human factors is one of the uh, things that he really focuses in on. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Hindsight magazine, and he talks a little bit about that. But um, some really great uh, resource that you can um, get that just really talking about human factors. Today, we, um, we go deep on... Um, learning from you know workers done and uh, he really talks about some of his experiences of uh, in sort of some fairly you know sort of high pressure environments where um where they really analyze how people do their work hey i'd love to uh, love to pass you over to Stephen. Stephen, thank thank you so much for uh, for joining us um today um, i'm really looking forward to, to having a chat with you could you just give us a little bit of um a little bit of information about about who you are and uh, you know what you do mm. yeah so my name's Stephen Shorrock I'm um, I'm a psychologist and a human factors engineer uh, and I work primarily within aviation um, for most of my career I've worked within aviation and air traffic management in particular uh, and transportation more generally within the railways so working on system safety within the railways and human factors within the within uh, railways both in the UK and um, in Australia um, and otherwise earlier in my career in various high hazard industries um, chemical industry in particular chemical manufacturing and a bit in other uh, other areas and uh, more recently, I do some um, work more on a, a sort of voluntary or advisory basis in healthcare. So um, that's that's quite a big interest of mine outside of aviation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I currently work for Eurocontrol, which is a um, European intergovernmental organization for um, aviation and air traffic management. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- within Eurocontrol, I do various uh, aspects of work within system safety. So uh, safety culture, systems thinking work. Um, and uh, also I'm the editor of a magazine called Hindsight, mm-hmm. which is um, a, a magazine twice a year on, well, it's on human and organizational factors in operations. So it's primarily based around air traffic management, but it has wide applicability among many different sectors. So yeah, that magazine's called uh, Hindsight, and it's free to download on a website called Skybury. So it's quite easy to find. Oh, that, um, that's that's something that the uh, the people that are listening to this episode will, I'm sure, will will take the opportunity to go and uh, um, go and, and view. How many? You know, do, do, does it get quite a lot of uh, of um, spread? I mean, how many how many people download? Do you have any ideas? Um, I'm not quite sure about the download numbers because, well, there's data on all different articles, but it, it used to be printed with a print run of around seven, 8,000 mm-hmm. uh, and then and then many more online. So it's accessed around the world. I normally publicize it via uh, LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, depending on the each article has many thousands of different downloads. And the, the last 
issue was which was published quite recently a few months ago was on uh, learning from everyday work and especially there was a supplement on learning through covid mm -hmm. and there's previous issues on well-being workers imagined workers done goal conflicts trade-offs all kinds of areas we're up to issue 31 at the moment so yeah Brilliant. we've covered co covered a lot of ground uh, i took over editorship about um about four years ago something like that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and where are you getting your contributions from then who's uh you know who's putting stuff in so it's uh it's quite an eclectic mix the nice thing about hindsight magazine is it's quite um it's quite a sort of democratic platform in in a sense for publishing um so most of the articles come from frontline practitioners um mostly air traffic controllers and pilots about their experiences uh, and then we have articles from safety scientists so in the last issue there's been articles from uh eric holnagel richard cook for instance who are very well known within safety science yep. um previously um sydney decker and um yeah nipping and and a whole bunch of a whole bunch of people from safety science from psychology human factors and then in each article i usually get each issue rather i usually get an article uh, a few articles from outside of aviation so they've been from firefighting from healthcare from uh gosh all kinds of areas and sometimes i'll get i'll do interviews with people um specific people really in, who are frontline people but not in aviation at all um so the last one with was with um one of the uk's um most senior female firefighters sabrina Co uh, hatton cohen mm -hmm. um so so yeah that's the kind of nature of the magazine it ranges from frontline writers you know who who are really not writers they're front frontline operators mm -hmm. through to you know career researchers and really my job as an editor is to get the voice and the tone of the of the magazine right such that it's useful to its primary audience people basically in operational roles that's absolutely wonderful i mean i, I wasn't expecting that um you to talk about this uh, um today which but it's absolutely brilliant that you are and um you know i wouldn't mind just exploring that a little bit further if that's okay mm, you know because sure. i think it's um you know having resources like this that, that people can get hold of it, you know it's just it's just it's just really good so do you have you got like a program then of of of, of um, things that you want to talk about and you know and publicise moving forward? I mean, how do you how do you decide what goes in? Yeah, it's a good question. So it, it's um, th th there's a whole back catalogue of 31 issues now, and so we try not to, try not to repeat too much. And in the earlier days of Hindsight Magazine, it was much more on operational risks. Um, you know, in aviation, that operational risks would be things like loss of separation between aircraft, runway incursions with kind of un unauthorized entry to the runway presenting a, fl a flight risk, um, runway excursions, um, uh, other various risks that will be relevant more to air traffic management. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, there were lots of there was there's been lots of issues like that, and then issues on more human factors topics like situation awareness, workload, communication, and, and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So it had very much a safety flavour. And over the last three or four years, what I've done is moved it to a, a more systemic footing. So it still has a safety flavour, but it's basically about human and organisational uh, factors. Mm -hmm. um, so how we choose is 
depending what's going on at the time. Uh, and sometimes it's just fortuitous. So issue 30 came out at the start of the pandemic mm-hmm. and that issue was on well-being, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't selected. Um, it wasn't selected anything to do with um, the pandemic because we didn't know about it at the time, you know, mm-hmm. it was just selected. Um, so that was uh, that. That was that one, and and then the one after that was on learning from everyday work, which is an aspect of safety too, and this whole idea of work is imagined and and work is done, and mm-hmm. you know varieties of human work, which I sometimes write about, and and so on. Um, so it's whatever comes up at the time. And the next issue, which will be thirty-two, which will be in the probably in the summer, will be about uh, the new reality. So the new reality of of aviation, but also in other industries and probably healthcare is a good example mm-hmm. where where things have changed mm-hmm. um so it's it's just getting experiences especially from frontline operators about that mm-hmm. can we talk about that a little bit now um mm, you know sure. because it's been um you know it's been just such a you know an enormous change to, to so many people and and i just you know wondered you know how you know how has it affected you know your you know your your business you know and, and your control um you know what has what has been the, the biggest impact that it's had on you? Obviously, a lot of lot of not a lot's been flying, but you know things are starting to come back a bit now, aren't they? How's it how's it working? Yeah, well, for aviation generally, it's obviously had a, an, an enormous impact with you know traffic levels down to kind of a steady around fifty percent or or so. So going really back to the probably late eighties levels, you know. Um, so that's kind of traffic levels, but then there's the there's a whole range of system wide effects, you know. So if we take a systems thinking approach, then there's there's issues of um, obviously much reduced revenue, which then affects all aspects of the system because it affects the resourcing of the whole business. Um, uh, from a, a safety point of view, um, there there are impacts. Um, there are impacts with, yeah, again, fewer resources, but there are more specific impacts with things like competency in particular. So for uh, pilots and also for air traffic controllers, in particular for those operational roles, but also for others, um, this idea of skill fade, you know, of skill, of skill maintenance. Uh, how do you actually maintain your skills when, you've, when, you, when you're not flying? Mm-hmm. So for, for a pilot, that will mean lots of time in the simulator which creates huge simulator demand, which wasn't there previously. And of course, everybody's got to get in the simulator. And then there's all of the COVID security issues of, of, of maintaining a COVID secure environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar for controllers. I mean, it's in some cases, it's like you're on a permanent night shift. So there's also issues of uh, fatigue, strangely enough. I mean, uh, there's, there's issues of that. There's also issues of well-being, of course, which are quite, you know, quite intangible in in many ways. They're quite hard to measure um, what the impacts of of that are. Um, And the safety risks remain, you know, regardless of the amount of traffic. I mean, in in Europe, when we had, you know, well, one of the biggest, uh, certainly mid-air collisions of of Uberlingen, which happened, uh, which happened in the early 2000s, 2002, uh, the, the, there were only two aircraft on frequency. So, you know, it's a very, it was low workload. So the workload and the risk are not uh, positively correlated, let's say. And most controllers, uh, most pilots, most people, I think, would just rather to be, let's say, comfortably busy 
mm-hmm. than, than, than to have very little to do because there's issues with monitoring and, you know, how, how do you monitor for rare, infrequent, unpredictable things, mm-hmm. you know? So there's those, there's those kinds of, those kinds of issues. And how has the, how has the industry sort of come together then to, to tackle some of these issues that you've spoken about? Has it been, cause I, cause I do see that the, the airline industry is, as a, as something that's, that's at the forefront from a health and safety perspective. And I've, I've spoken to people like Adam Johns um, on, on the show, you know, who's, um, you know, you know, very, very positive about, um, you know, about, about the approaches that's taken, but is it, has it been a, a sort of a combined approach with respect to access to, to simulators and things like that, or, or have individual companies, you know, and if, you know, if you don't want to talk about this, then please say, mm. but I wonder what, what the general view has been, you know, is it the people come together? Well, airline, airlines would have their own simulators and so would air navigation service providers, ATC companies, in other words, mm-hmm. uh, have, their, have, their own, um, have their own simulators. Um, so Eurocontrol has a very unique role in bringing together different stakeholders, so especially ANSPs, for instance. And, and from a safety point of view, we have a role in a kind of coordination and, and, and a, a sort of hosting role in bringing together, you know, the 41 different states around Europe mm-hmm. so that safety professionals, um, you know, get together to uh, talk about what their issues are and what some of their concerns are, what some of their risks, problems and opportunities are. Um, and the, yeah, the, the, um, the department or unit that I sit within, that's one of, one of our roles mm-hmm. um, that, that my manager coordinates that. Um, so that, that's quite a unique role that we have in coordinating and bringing people together to share, you know, understanding of problems uh, good practices and, and 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 so on so the the, um, the the good thing i think about aviation and safety and probably safety quite generally is there's less there's very little competition on safety if any at all you know and that doesn't apply to other goals to the same degree of course you know um so there's 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 always been a lot of coordination, a lot of exchange of information within Europe, within European aviation, when it comes to uh, safety. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you you were saying at the beginning as well about the you know sort of healthcare has been become a you know sort of a, something that you're passionately sort of looking. Mm. At. So what sort of areas are you know are you are you are you looking at and sort of ch- challenging, I suppose, in that in that. Mm. Field? Yeah, so I, I don't work formally in healthcare because I'm, you know, I'm already fully kind of employed. So it, it's more of an interest area of mine because I, uh, because uh, well, my professional background is is work psychology and human factors or systems ergonomics, and I just noticed that there's so little competency within healthcare within the NHS. So uh, to give you an example, um, NATS, which used to be National Air Traffic Services in the UK, which is the the, the organization responsible for on-route air traffic control and many airports within the UK, they, over the last few years, have had between 25 and 30 human factors specialists within the organization over the last few years. Um, that's for an organization of about 4,500 staff. Now, the NHS is an organization of about 1.4 million staff mm-hmm. and has really has had a handful of human factors specialists. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I looked at NHS England once, which let's say it's a million staff and the number of chartered 
uh, human factors and ergonomics specialists, like you have chartered health and safety, uh, you know, or en en chartered engineers and chartered accountants and so on and so on. Um, the, the number of chartered uh, HFE specialists was one. That's for, that's for a staff of one million. So I wrote a blog post on that, which is on my blog, which is uh, humanisticsystems.com. And that post was called The Loneliest Profession in Healthcare mm-hmm. um, because I could verify that was, there was one chartered human factors and ergonomic specialist for, healthcare, for NHS England. Now, there's a bit more than that now, but it's still, it, whether you're talking about chartered, qualified, registered, it doesn't really matter. There's, there's still, you know, you know, five, six, seven, certainly no more than 10 for a staff of 1.5 million. Mm. Now, this is for an industry where many, many people die with, um, you know, associated with factors within the system that could be addressed with human factors approaches, i.e. especially design issues, the design of work, the design of equipment, the design of uh, pharmaceutical products, you know, the design of shifts, the design of training and so on. So that to me just seemed like a crazy situation. So that's really how I started poking a stick at healthcare in a sense, really through social media and especially through Twitter, where I got to know a lot of clinicians of all, all different kinds, you know, uh, especially anaesthetists and nurses work a lot in inpatient safety. Um, um, intensivists, intensive care doctors work a lot in patient safety as well. Uh, so I've steadily done that. I can't say I've had a huge amount of success in increasing the number of HFE speci- specialists, human factor specialists, but that has happened as well. There has been an increase. But there's now just much more awareness, I think, mm-hmm. within the NHS of what human factors is, what it isn't, how it can contribute, and how clinicians especially can get involved in, in uh, trying to you know, improve work. Mm. Um. You know, for 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 the, again for the benefit of the listeners, and and it could be an enormous topic. This, but can you just explain a little bit more about how you see human factors? Then, what you see as the, the sort of the aspects that, that people ought to be considering. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, human factors is um, essentially a systems discipline and a design discipline. So, we look at we look at work um, and the design of work through a systems perspective, looking at the whole system and how everything interacts. So, how people interact with other people, with procedures, with equipment, with um, their environment. So, with all kinds of tangible and intangible aspects of uh, of a system within a particular boundary, which we uh, decide on as practitioners for the as our uh, unit of study, if you like. Uh, and what, what, we're, what we're looking at is interactions, especially within a work co- contact, uh, context, and how we can design interactions or work, so interactions between people and all other elements of a system, for two main goals. So one is to improve overall system performance. Mm-hmm. And that's not just human performance, which is often confused a bit, because actually human performance could be quite good, but the system performance could be quite poor, mm-hmm. um, simply because um, you're not looking at things from a, a macro you know enough perspective so and the other the other the other aspect or the other goal of human factors and ergonomics is well-being mm-hmm. 
So their shares a kind of uh, health and safety uh, perspective on trying to increase those, trying to optimize those two goals. And that's what makes human factors and ergonomics. That's the unique aspect of it is that it's not focused on just well-being and safety, but ne neither is it focused on productivity and efficiency. It's constantly trying to find a good balancing act between all of these different goals mm -hmm. and looking at the trade-offs between them. Mm -hmm. And how we do that is via design. Uh, but that's not just the design of stuff like equipment, tools, and so on. It's the design of the work, essentially. So how people interact with procedures, how people interact with machines, and how they do that within a particular environment. Mm. Um, and that, that brings up all kinds of issues of, you know, work is imagined and work is done, and what people think that others do versus what people actually do. And the focus of human factors is always on work is done. But of course, you have to. There's some imagination involved in that, and so we, we, in a way, we're always trying to bridge this gap between work as imagined and work as done. I think, um, you know, how I see that in my, um, you know, sort of in my career is is when you know when something has gone wrong, and uh, and you go and talk to the management, they they come out with words like usually and normally, you know, mm -hmm. and they say oh, we usually do this and we normally do that, and and what that gives a, a bit of an indication to me is is that they they probably don't actually know how the work is usually and normally done. It's just how they, how they would like to see it done or how they, they, their perception of how it's done. And the reality is actually a little bit different. So, so how do you go about actually you sort of investigating that then? What's, you know, what, is the, what is the approach that you take to, to get a real understanding of, of, of what is actually happening out there? So I, I guess in, in that sense, we're using basic social science methods. Um, so we're using um, interviews for instance discussions uh, focus groups and i do that extensively all over europe um have done over the last few years um and we're also doing uh, observation of people at work um and we're doing things like um you know inspection of things like documents and, and, and other other artifacts in the environment to get a sense of uh these various differences and I call these um, varieties of human work. So there's work as imagined as, which is what people think that other people do, or even what, the, what people think that they, they do themselves, because we don't, we don't have a good understanding really of what even we do or what we think we would do in a given situation or in the future. So that's work as imagined. Uh, and what that has in what work as it's characteristic, let's say, of work as imagined is that it's always simplified and in fundamental ways quite incorrect. And so managers, others that are not in day-to-day -day routine contact with a given group, such as frontline operators, the work as imagined will be very, very sketchy. Mm -hmm. And people tend to have way too much confidence in their imagination of what other people do. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's work as imagined. Then there's work as prescribed, which is the kind of rules, procedures, best practices, good practices, whatever you want to call them, regulations, laws, and so on. So that's all, that's how things should be done according to how it's prescribed. Um, so we, we look at that as well, um, in doing our kind of task analysis, job analysis, and so on. And then there's, uh, another variety of work, which, which is work as disclosed, which is what people say they do which is not necessarily what they do you know but when we do interviews or even just in general conversation people will disclose aspects of their work and it may or may not be what they really do you know for all kinds of innocent and not so innocent reasons mm -hmm. uh, and then there's work has done which is what people really do so I'm constantly interrogating the differences 
between these. So if there's a difference between work as prescribed, what people should do, let's say, and work as done, which is what really happens, then what's the reasons for that? What are the systemic reasons for that? Why does it make sense for people to work in that way? Um, there could be all kinds of other gaps. So uh, you could read a bit more about that in a post I have called The Varieties of Human Work on humanisticsystems.com. And uh, a series of posts called The Archetypes of Human Work and another series called Proxies for Human Work, where I just talk about all of these, um, let's say, yeah, many of them really are proxies for actual activity. In other words, there's only one way that people do things, and that's work has done. Mm-hmm. And people do it in all kinds of ways. And on a given day, they may do it differently to yesterday. It varies, you know, it, and, and so on. But there's only one real work and that's work has done and everything else such as measurements work has measured you know work has prescribed our observations work has observed uh what people say about their work work has disclosed you know our judgments work has judged all of these things i call proxies for human work they're all ways that we try to get a sense for what people really do but it's not what people really do Mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of, in a sense, counterfeits for the real thing, mm-hmm. you know, because we can never truly understand what people did in the past. Mm-hmm. And it's useful to know that because um, it gives us a kind of, um, it, it reminds us to be humble, that you never actually know what went on in the past, not fully, because you can't get inside someone's head and you weren't there. Mm-hmm. So what we do, and we do this in human factors, you do it in health and safety, you do it as a manager, you know, even as a police investigator, what you do is you try to get data mm-hmm. and you build a picture. But what you're constructing, again, is your own imagination mm-hmm. uh, of what actually happened or even what happens now on a day-to-day basis. But you'll never actually understand it. You'll approach an understanding, but you'll never know. Mm-hmm. And so how do you decide what to what to look at then? Because, you know, in, in somebody's, uh, you know, in somebody's work, you know, mm. loads of things that they're going to be doing. So, so yeah. how do you, you know, how do you decide where to where to focus the attention? Well, that will depend on that. Usually you'll be engaged in some kind of um, some kind of pro- project or something. But it depends on the kind of work, you know, in my industry, let's say if it's an air traffic controller, the work that it makes it quite simple in a sense to observe, but difficult in another way. So a radar controller, for instance, is sitting in front of a radar observing. And so you can observe, you can observe with him or her, you can listen into the frequency. Um, that, that's quite easy. They're not moving around like someone on a construction site, which is much more difficult to observe, you know, to be following someone around, you know, is, is a bit of a, a bit of a pain. Uh, but, but then it's more difficult because you don't know what's going on inside that person's head. You know, you can, it's quite difficult to understand the traffic situation mm-hmm. in a tower, for instance, then it's a little bit easier because you can kind of see where people are looking and you can see aircraft on the airfield. And I've spent a lot of time observing in Heathrow, for instance, so you can observe there and simply I'll just spend days and days, um, observing, you know, sitting, you have to form a relationship before you do that or at least whilst you're doing that, that's essential. Um, And of course, you can do that with pilots as well who are quite immobile. So there you've got a kind of captive audience, you know. With others, if you're on something like a chemical plant where I've worked in the past, it's much more difficult. You've got people walking around and you can't be chasing people around necessarily everywhere, you know. Um, That can be quite disruptive. 
Um, so, but I mean, the way that I would usually start in terms of observing is by talking to people first about, um, about their work, you know, asking them questions like what makes your work, what's going well in your work, you know, first of all, you know, and secondly, what are the challenges and dilemmas and difficulties? What, what makes your work more difficult than it needs to be? You know, what makes, what makes the day longer than it needs to be in the context of your work, you know, uh, asking them questions like that. And then that will give usually some focus areas, but alternatively it may be driven by a risk assessment, in which case you've got particular activities, you know, that you need to um, observe. Mm. Um, and that's been the case for me as well, where I'm observing something very, very specific, like how a controller uses uh, electronic flight progress strips in a particular, um, you know, when, when, when giving clearances to take off or land, for instance, and how they're manipulating those strips, something as specific as that, you know, mm-hmm. even perhaps using eye movement tracking. So there could be various triggers for what you observe, but um, it's useful to, to talk to people, first of all, because they'll, they'll usually have the answers about, about mm-hmm. that. But it may be, as I said, it may be triggered by uh, an incident investigation or it may be triggered by a safety assessment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that this, these, these approaches are apl- applicable to most industries then? Is there, is there some benefit to be gained, whatever you were? Uh, I think that, I mean, the basic social science approaches of uh, basically observing people and talking to people are applicable beyond safety. They're just applicable to all forms of, um, of, of management and all, all ways of improving work. And, you know, Tom Peters, who's the, who's a, you may know he's a, a guru of, um, of, of management and, and leadership, you know, and he always talks about management by walking around. And he always acronymizes things. So it's um, M-B-W-A. So he's always written about that and the importance of locating management as closely as possible to the work. Um, You know, basically, you know, if you, I wrote another post with this title years ago that if you want to understand risk, you have to get out from behind your desk Mm -hmm. because you're always trapped in, this world of work is imagined, which is kind of safe and cozy um, and reassuring, but fundamentally wrong uh, until you really find out what's going on. You know, I, um, I used to work with a guy called Peter McKee, uh, who was in, in DuPont years ago. Um, and uh, his line was that if you, if you want to go duck hunting, you have to go where the ducks are. And uh, yeah. that's a really lovely way of a uh, lovely way of phrasing it, you know. And if you know, yeah, yeah, you just got to get out there, you know. Yeah, that 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 that's basic. That's basically it, you know. And everything, um, uh, no matter how technical things are, everything goes through this through the relationship. And so, this is something that you kind of have to establish first. And that can be difficult for some approaches that are very technocratic approaches even to observation you know perhaps behavioral safety approaches and so on where you're observing people at work um but the relationship's not not there you know my approach is a my kind of ethnographic approach as a is to really get get to know people first Mm -hmm. and then you'll find out so much more once you have once you have a relationship and once there's trust you'll find out so much more about the way that, that things work and so I kind of uh, observe people by basically hanging out. Mm-hmm. 
So I just hang out with them. You know, I minimize any kind of clipboards or, you know, anything like that. You need a little pad to note stuff down, but just hang out with them and you just find out all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Mm. And, and what's your view then on, you know, because I go, go into a lot of businesses, right? And they have spent ages putting risk assessments together, you know, to, you know, that fill, fill up a filing cabinet somewhere. You know, if, if people are, are trained and competent and, and operating to, to, to a good standard, how much, how much paperwork is needed, do you think, you know, to, uh, to sort of support the process? You know, I mean, are you, are you sort of thinking, you know, the better, the more competent the people come, you know, the less process you need? Or are you saying that you need good process that actually then is supported with the, uh, you know, with the, um, the training and the debt development for individuals? Where do you, where does it... Well, I'm, I'm really looking at it from a, a systemic point of view and not, not from an individual competency okay. point of view, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm not just observing uh, people's activity. Mm-hmm. I'm um, trying, to, trying to get a sense also for the context and for the tools that they use. Now, that, so that, the context is always changing, um, you know. So I'm trying to pay attention to the social context, to the technological context, you know, to the uh, temporal context of time, because the time that you observe people will determine the kinds of things that you see, you know, day shift, night shift, and so on. Um, So paying attention to all the different aspects of uh, context and the tools that people use as well, and just how all of these interact, you know, so basically people, activity, context, and tools, P-A-C-T, PACT, and how how all of those things interact. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, of course things like competency come in, come into everything and that's uh, an expertise but um my own approach is quite light on things like procedures and i've done both you know i've done very heavily proceduralized tick box uh, approaches looking for certain behaviors uh, and i've done a lot of that and i've done much lighter approaches where you're taking a more global view uh, and for that you have to have a pretty good understanding of the task Mm-hmm. you know but for both you you need some kind of relationship i think because observation also can change the the, the behavior yes uh, rarely for rarely for very long because it becomes quite difficult to maintain performance when in, in a contrived artificial way but it, it does it does it does have some changes mm. and is there i mean but is there an outcome that you're you know that you're looking for um i mean obviously it's it's the job being done in the best possible way, you know, that's, but is there, you know, are, is there some kind of, 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 of document or process that you're, you're looking to, to have at the end of this, you know, that you, you've observed people, you know, if you observe people and, and you, and you feel things aren't quite right, you know, although people don't think things are quite right, it's probably a better mm. way of saying it, then it's got to, then some outcomes got to happen. And how does, how does that outcome follow through? And, you know, what does, you know, what does that look like? Mm. Uh, there was there was a good example of that years years ago when I was um, observing um, in air traffic control and the the evidence that I had to get for my director at the time was that people were uh, that, that that 
people were performing up to a standard that safety was, you know, was, was uh, maintained appropriately. Uh, so that evidence is quite hard to get. So when, you, when you're looking at a question like that, you may, you, you'll need some kind of criteria to observe, some kind of behavioral criteria. And that's very sector specific. It's very context specific. Uh, in an air traffic control tower, for instance, it might mean that when a controller is giving an instruction that they actually look, look out of the window you know, there's a kind of pairing of those two behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that. So, so you may have certain criteria. Um, but again, on the other hand, you'll see if you stick too rigidly to criteria, then you'll miss other things that come along, you know, because you can only focus on one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. If you focus on object B, that necessarily means that you're not focusing on object A. So you have to make some choices on how much you zoom in and to criteria and how much you zoom out but the objective is learning ultimately and so when you come out of a session you and you've learned something new about the activity about the context about the work about the tools about the people then you know that then you then you've got something and uh, even better if the people that you're observing are somehow involved in the process so that they feel that they can take action on it as well mm. um so yeah, it, it really does vary depending on what you're trying to do. When I'm observing, I'm trying to inc increase learning to find out new things about the work that I didn't know before, mm -hmm. trying to create an environment where people can behave naturally as possible and can, uh, usually they will talk through their job at, at certain points with me as well. Um, obviously not if they're speaking to aircraft, but you know, there'll be some discussion backwards and backwards and forwards as, as well. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the more psychological safety you have where people feel free to speak without fear of punishment or, you know, uh, or anything, anything else then um, the more of that that you can do, the more learning you can do. Mm. And how, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously one of the, the, the greatest uh, events must be that you go out and, and you walk away from that situation after spending some time with people and you just think that was just amazing. You know, that was absolutely brilliant, you know, because it's not, you know, there's too many people I think in our profession that are always going out and looking for problems and looking for mm. issues. You know, I mean, you know, actually being able to see stuff that's that's being done really, really well, and it's almost just saying that this is brilliant. You know, reinforcing that, uh, you know, that good that good approach to, to how the how the work is being being mm. completed is it, it, you know is that must be that must be great when you see that. Yeah, well, I think you know, within safety professions and health and safety professions, um, we need to have much more of an asset um, basis, an asset base for our work which we don't tend to have because you know safety uh and health and safety are uh, strange professions in a way that we tend to look for the things that we don't want we approach the topic through an anti-goal rather than a goal and it becomes a kind of fly swatting exercise it's a bit like psychiatry in that way you know where you're trying to approach you know mental health through mental ill health it's it's kind of a if you were to think about it from the start it's a, it's a strange way to look at things uh and so whilst you need to look we need a deficit uh, perspective we also need an asset perspective and that's to tend to be what i will start with so certainly in discussions i will start with questions about what's going right and when uh observing also you want to observe about what's going well um, and there's good reasons for that and that's not just a pat on the back or to come away with a good feeling or to say well done um it's more about the fact that well in times such as now where there are cuts 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's things like downsizing. Unless you know what's going well, then how do you know what not to cut? Mm. You don't. Mm. Uh, and uh, if you know what's going well, you know what needs to be protected. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, training, uh, recurrence training, refresher training. We know that this this is when it's done properly is valued by frontline operators they need to re- refresh their skills it's too easy to cut it's too easy to trim uh, another another issue is well uh, what do we need to scale up what do we need to scale out what good practice do we need to spread to other sites mm-hmm. now unless you're looking for, unless you're looking for what's working well for people you won't know what to scale out and to scale up mm-hmm. in a sense the whole approach the def the whole deficit approach is an approach to keep health and safety people and in jobs because <laughs> you'll always find more problems yeah. and um of, of course it's necessary i'm not downplaying that but it's it's not necessarily the right place to start mm. you know um by talking at least starting it's a it's a matter of sequence sequence rather than either or but by starting with what's going what's going strong you you can get good discussions going you could people will be more than happy to talk about their work they'll feel some pride then you can go on to what's going wrong but you can approach that in in a different way by asking people about you know what makes their job more difficult than it needs to be you know these kind of factors Mm -hmm. usually it's not about the individuals usually it's about the way that the work is organized you know Mm -hmm. it's about the system as a whole as well Mm -hmm. so yeah it's about this asset-based approach is a matter of sequence start with what's strong not what's wrong but mm-hmm. then you then you can move on to that, and that's a much more balanced observation. It's also a much more balanced discussion. I'm just going to write that. I'm just going to write that down. I love that. Start with what's wrong, not what's wrong. Sorry. I think you know it, people need to feel that people in in uh, health and safety professions are there to make their work easier and better. Mm. You know, that's a supportive role mm-hmm. as well as safer. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, that, that it, it's, it's a natural starting point. And also just talk about day-to-day work. Talk mm-hmm. about everyday work. Mm-hmm. You know, many things will come up in that context without focusing on necessarily errors, you know, non-compliance, all of these kinds of things, which will come up. It's, it's, it's natural, you know, it's normal, but... Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, um, when we were talking just now about about sort of good practice and sort of best practice, mm. you know. Um, and I've seen I've I've seen good things in businesses that businesses try and spread across their business and do an appalling job at it. Mm. You know. So what was what's the what's what's the 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 best way to spread good practice in an organisation? Uh, well, there's no such thing as best practice, you know, if that's the first thing, uh, there's only contextual practice and that's where a bit of a confusion arises because best practice is best in a particular context, but not in another context and contexts vary. So you go from site to site and the local culture is different. Um, and so things are not, so you might have a basic, um, idea, but it will tend to need to be, tend to need to be adapted. Um, and whenever you're doing working systems, you have to start with understanding the the current system, mm-hmm. which is the you know the the current system includes the people, their activities, the con- the multiple contexts of work, and their tools. That's always the starting point for analysis. 
what the mistake people often make is trying to um, rather than starting with that let's say context system they start with uh, an intervention system an intervention um, uh, and transplant that you know it's like a heart transplant but a heart won't fit a new heart won't fit into everybody you know, it's like the, the, the new body is a whole new context. So you have to make sure there's things that are compatible. Like, I don't know, I'm not a surgeon, I'm not a physician, but the blood type and, 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 and so on and so on. Um, so it's similar in organizations. You can't just transplant a heart into a different body and expect, you know, expect it to work. Mm. Yeah, you have to understand the local context and give people in that context a role in actually adapting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what you want is you want a sort of a, a high level, a high level aim of what we want to try and look at and then, and then involve the people that are doing it to, to see how they can, how they can consider what is, what's being suggested and how it could potentially fit into their, into their particular, their place of work. Yeah. 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 It's like a kind of, uh, human centered design process, you know, where we start with understanding, as I said, the people, their activities, the context and tools, and then we go on to looking at, um, user needs in human-centered design. Mm -hmm. So that's the broad statement of what they need to do a good job. And then we look at the system requirements that deliver that need. So it's a similar kind of thing, but what firms do is they go straight in with the requirements, like implement that here without considering, well, what need does it serve? Maybe it doesn't serve a need. Maybe it's not needed. Um, you know, maybe, um, and also you'll need to consider, as I said, the local context. That's always the starting point, but it's always the thing that's missed, you know, because it's time consuming, it's difficult, it requires particular skills to understand a local, um, a local culture, a lo you know, a local environment, the people to mm -hmm. do that stakeholder analysis, mm -hmm. you know, but, it, but it's the starting point, especially in human factors work, the starting point is, is, is the understanding the system boundary. So what is the system you're talking about and understanding the stakeholders that work within that system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. these are the absolute basic starting points but they're often missed in interventions mm -hmm. like this and i i see a lot as well is you know it, you know managers try to to impose these common common approaches and really it's just a lazy way of managing you know and it's mm -hmm. what they, they should be doing is they should be looking on an individual basis you know a large a large business is in actual fact as a, a whole raft of small businesses <laughs> mm. all yeah, of course just come together haven't they you know <clears throat> and, uh, yeah i mean man managers typically view culture very differently to staff they have manage, manage senior management especially have a sort of well what we say in culture research a, a more functionalist viewpoint on culture they tend to it's again workers imagine they like the idea that there's one culture within an organization that can be manipulated changed engineered designed mm. developed you know uh, by policies procedures you know diktats reorganizations that's the typical kind of approach now staff have a much more as we'd say in culture research interpretive approach to culture knowing that for them culture is very localized and it exists to serve local needs it exists for their own survival for one but it exists for local needs to solve their own problems and to realize their opportunities uh, that's a much more bottom-up approach to culture let's say interpretive versus a top-down functionalist approach mm -hmm. um, now those two are you know by and large quite incompatible from the bottom-up approach you can't design a culture 
You cannot engineer a culture. It, it, you know, as new people come into the organization, they're acculturated by the existing staff into the local environment. And each site location will have a particular kind of broad culture in terms of shared values and, and shared attitudes and beliefs and so on. But moreover, each team will also, you know, as you said earlier, you know, that's quite, it's a very local uh, thing but so there's a there's a constant kind of battleground between these top-down functionalist approach and this bottom-up kind of interpretive approach and you see that playing out in things like reorganizations and you know culture change campaigns and and, and so on which very often just don't don't uh, meet their aims you know mm. yeah and I um, I, often, I often hear the term or I have in the past heard the term you know somebody's gone native you know what I mean, and they've they've gone into a gone into a, a, a part of the business somewhere, and uh, and suddenly their approach has changed because they've been influenced by the people that they're now working with, and mm. you know, and sometimes the senior, you know, sort of people people who are remote from it, you know, see that as a negative. But in actual fact, what those people have done is they've, you know, they've they've adapted that their way of working to to fit in with 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 how it works best on that particular location. You know, yeah, yeah, that, that's right, that's in, right. I mean, uh, we see that in ecological environments. You know, outside me is a old graveyard that's that's full of you know ponds and things like that and uh if you to if you to move from one you know part to the other you'll probably need to adapt to to live in this new environment you know um and so it's the same in businesses you're not going to move to a new business area and not adapt because you'll you'll be part of an outgroup you're not going to survive so it's natural that people do that but there are also people who um have a kind of who are kind of connectors who are um who who can live on the edges you know uh, i'm probably one of the those people i'm i'm uh, more comfortable at the edge than i am in the center in, in many senses and that gives you an advantage that you can communicate with different groups um you know those people at the edge in, in a sense see more you know uh, the people at the middle have it's like being in the middle of a crowd you know you only see the people that are right next to you you know but when you're on the edge you can kind of see more but the disadvantage is you're perhaps not fully you know accepted in a, in a given group so you'll see both of these behaviors you know mm-hmm. so i mean just just on that then you know i mean the 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 health and safety uh um profession at the moment is uh there's quite a lot of infighting going on with the uh, traditional safety and new view you know and mm-hmm. um Mm. You know, and 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 it look, you know, it looks quite unprofessional at times from from the outside. But what's what's your take on that? And you know, and how how's the profession going to move forward? You know, what does it what does it need to do to you know to to, to become professional? Mm. Uh, I don't know about becoming professional, but I, I think in what I observe on platforms such as LinkedIn, and I don't much get involved in these debates. I just write myself, you know, on my, on my um, blog is um, it's just not to feel, not to feel threatened Mm. by different perspectives, by different ways of thinking, but equally not to feel that one given perspective is universally uh, valid or appropriate. Mm -hmm. So I wrote, I wrote a blog on humanisticsystems.com some years ago called mind your mindset uh, and that was just about safety one and, and safety two, which are, you know, they, they, they simply have different um, spheres of reference, safety, safety one and safety two. One is focused on accidents and incidents, either in the past or potentially in the future. And the other is focused on 
all outcomes. That's the main difference between the two. Uh, another difference is that one tends to view the human being more as a hazard or liability, being safety one. I mean, and this is easily demonstrated when you look in reports, you look at the language, you look at the glossary, you look at the terms, the taxonomies. And the other tends to view the human being as more of a perhaps essential flexible element. Now, both of these views have have uh, primary relevance. You know, who would want to fly on an aeroplane where you haven't done absolutely rigorous failure modes and effects analysis and and uh, other various forms of hazard analysis, which are very deficit focused, you know, and focused on accidents? Not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, would you want a, a team where all of its interactions, all of its work, is approached from a deficit point of view? you know, and from a component point of view, from a linear cause effect point of view, you probably wouldn't. We know that teams don't work like that, whether it's a football team or a, you know, or a team on an oil rig, you know. So both of these are, so we have to be somehow flexible in choosing our perspective and mindset. That is core to systems thinking. It's one of the central feature of systems thinking. So I think what this shows is sometimes, ironically, just a lack of systems thinking, mm-hmm. that people find it difficult to switch perspectives yeah. and accept that there's not one reality. Of course, people also have vested interests. If you've spent 30 years in a deficit-based approach, of course, you're going to feel a bit threatened. Something quite new comes along, you know, that seems like a kind of new paradigm or whatever. Um, so that can be quite threatening. And finally, there are perhaps some ways of communicating new ideas that are more productive than others. And if you come out all guns blazing, saying that everything in the past is rubbish uh, and so on, then, well, for a start, that's just not really appropriate. There's not really that much evidence to back that up. And you're not going to get people on board. In other words, it's not a good persuasive technique. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there just it needs to be a bit more subtlety, really, mm-hmm. um, just to accept that there are different perspectives. Different perspectives are appropriate for different situations. Mm. I really, really like that. I really like that. Stephen, this it's it's been it's been really, really great chatting. You know, really, really appreciate uh, appreciate your time. How um how can people get hold of you then? What's the um well yeah, by by probably um so my webs my blog is humanisticsystems.com. I blog um very um sporadically sometimes i might do four in a month sometimes i might do one in two months depends what i feel like really um so i, I blog there i'm on linkedin um and i'm on twitter as just uh stephen shorrock um and uh yeah they're, they're probably the main ways and uh, also hindsight magazine you can find my details inside there my professional details so you can find hindsight if you just google skybrary uh hindsight skybrary hindsight yeah Okay, that's that's wonderful. Hey, look, thank you ever so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks, Colin. Good to speak to you and thanks for the opportunity. Stephen, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It um it was really great uh, to to chat with you and to and to listen to your your approach and your your views on on learning from from the people that are doing the work, that are doing the job. And it was it was just really interesting just to just to hear how in how much detail you go through, you know, how you when you when you're going and looking at people working in some of these, you know, these these high pressure environments that, uh, you know, just the, the way that they glance um, out the window when they're when they're maybe looking at a 
uh, what's going on on a screen on a on an air uh, in an airfield and then looking out the window and it's just you know bringing those two things together and you know just determining how how people react under pressure um it was it was great you know it was really really loved uh, really loved the chat um uh, you mentioned the uh the hindsight magazine it's definitely something that i'm going to start to uh to 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 take a closer look at and the the site that you spoke about i think was sky brewery so it's like library but just with sky at the beginning um you know so if people want to check that uh, that out then that's um that's really great um i'd love to hear people's uh, feedback on today's episode you know what did you know how did you find it um you know what are, what are your learnings from the uh, from the episode today and also um you know please like please share it um please subscribe you know do all the things that uh, um you know that that us podcasters ask you to do um, be really appreciated and if you get a chance to, to actually rate the rep the web the website the podcast then that'll be uh, that'll be really cool too um you know thank you ever so much and we will uh, we will speak again really soon bye for now Thanks for listening to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast. You can follow and engage on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching the Interesting Health and Safety community or go to www.influentialmg.com. And remember, let's make health and safety as important as everything else we do in business. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilised in the real world as the only solution available, as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Colin Nottage.